Hello and welcome to the Hole in My Heart podcast. This is episode 66, Seven Essential Failures of a Faithful Life. Hello, my name is Lori Krieg and we are coming at you from the blustery Grand Rapids, <laughs> Michigan. And I am here with licensed therapist and Argyle slash plaid because you've been wearing lots of plaid, babe. Argyle slash plaid expert, my husband. Oh, and licensed therapist. I didn't throw that in there. You said that. I did? Yeah, you did. I just really want to emphasize it. Okay. Yeah. Uh, My husband, Matt. Hello. (laughs) I wore the Argyle yesterday, guys. I'm sorry. (laughs) Got to mix up between the two. The the sweater vest was was rocking. Yeah, it was. (laughs) I'm remembering that now. Um, We also have our producer and the most professional voice among us, producer Steve. Howdy, y'all. Howdy, y'all. And he is saying howdy, y'all, because we do have a Texan among us. And we are so excited about our conversation with Chad Bird. And I'll do a little intro of him and then really and have you hear him. Uh, but Chad has degrees from Hebrew Union College and Concordia Theological Seminary. He currently is or has served as a professor, speaker, podcaster, and author of many articles and books, including the books Christ Alone and The Infant Priest. But the book we're exploring today is Upside Down, Spirituality, the Nine Essential Failures of an of a Faithful Life. Welcome, Chad Bird. Thank you. I appreciate y'all having me on the program. And, and I did. Did you hear the y'all? I, I did. did. Thank you for the job. <laughs> and we're fixing to have a good time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. That's so good. Well, we are so excited to have you here. And I know I titled this podcast The Seven Essential Failures because I, I felt to tackle your entire book with all nine would have maybe been a little too ambitious. Plus, I want to leave people guessing. So they go out and purchase your book, which comes out early April, right? Yes, uh, it's supposed to uh, hit the shelves or or hit the post post office on April second. Awesome! So about uh, four more months. It's so great, um, and I loved. And I didn't read this when I was sharing some of your professional bio, but I loved how it started online. Just is gonna. I feel like gonna feed the conversation of the seven for us essential failures. You said that whether he, you, are writing or speaking, his focus remains on God's good news for our world, that Jesus is the friend of sinners. And I just felt like I heard that. I don't know if that's like your life purpose. It makes sense if it's the good news and Jesus being the friend of sinners. But I felt that in reading your book, just that that was the goal. So just, I don't know. Thanks for that. Yeah, that's uh, I really encapsulates what uh, what, I, what I'm all about. Uh, I, I remember a story from years ago about a seminary professor asking his students to pick one of the names and titles of Jesus to write a paper on. And mm. as he went around the room, you know, people picked Messiah, Redeemer, King of Kings, such as that. And when he had collected all the topics that the students wanted to write on, he said, uh, there's, there's one missing. In fact, it's probably the most important title and he can't figure out why well, no one wanted to write on it, and that title was Friend of Sinners, hmm. uh, because that, that is the one that is so full of, of comfort for us. And for those of us who, who know just uh, what kind of sinners we are, there's, yeah. there's no greater comfort than knowing that Christ is indeed not our enemy, but our, our friend. Absolutely. Oh, yeah. Okay, this is going to be a good convo. All right. Speaking of good conversation, there was a great conversation happening online, really just continuing and picking up our our conversation. I can't stop saying that word right now. Uh, But with Kurt Thompson on shame, we had that two parter that we we really explored the soul of shame. And I wanted to hear from you all. How do you combat that shame? So if shame is a feeling 
that the world and the enemy screams at us of we are worth less. How do you personally combat it? And we just had a great conversation online about that. Um, but I'll start with you, Chad. Uh, what? How, how do you combat shame? You know, we can see, yeah, we are sinners, and we we know like that level of depth of sin. But how do we come? How do we halt from not just confessing sin and and stop from perhaps even confessing personhood, which is unnecessary, and really just diving into shame? How do you combat that? Yeah, I I have a lot of experience with this. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I, yeah. Yeah, I mean, well, I guess I guess we all do, but uh, yeah. I've I've done some uh, very shameful things in my life that mm. uh, that for years and years I I struggled with, and uh, you know I, I think it's for and you probably you know have have talked about this before, but it's it's helpful when I think about shame to uh, to distinguish it from guilt. You know, guilt yeah. is 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 the bad feeling we have for what we've done, but shame is the feeling of, of, that's connected with who we are. Yeah. So it's not something we've done, but it, but it's who we are. And so mm-hmm. it hits us, hits us deeper. It hits us right in the gut. In fact, shame is, is such a, a, a physical emotion that when we are ashamed, you know, we blush or our stomach tightens or we break out in a sweat. So it's a, the, the physicality of shame is a, is a very, is a very real thing. Yeah. Now I, I mean, I, I, am no uh, expert on, on dealing with shame. Uh, and it really depends on whether it, I'm, I'm feeling ashamed because of something I've done or whether I'm feeling ashamed because of something that someone has done to me. Mm-hmm. Uh, when you, when you get right down to it, I guess it's, it, it's basically the same thing that you're struggling with. But for me anyway, uh, what I go back to time and time again is that what we're seeking is acceptance and love. Mm-hmm. And when we when we feel ashamed, that is that is not what we what we uh, are feeling. And so it's it's a return it's a return to the acceptance of we, of, of God for us in Christ. Yeah. That is really the only the only answer to shame. That Paul says, "I'm not ashamed of the gospel because the gospel actually removes shame, not just guilt and death mm-hmm. and and all the other bad things of life, but it removes shame as well by by giving us." completion and perfection and acceptance in Christ in whom, in whom there is, there is no shame. So it's just mm-hmm. diving deeper and deeper into the gospel. Mm-hmm. That's the only way that I found that really combats that uh, attack of shame on us. That's so critical. And I hear in that just a gripping of truth, even if we don't feel the truth. Mm-hmm. And sometimes we just need to grip it and stare at it and be like, no, I don't feel this, but I am choosing to believe this. Uh, until our emotions can follow. Yeah, well, and actually, Chad, as you're talking and, and really clinging to, you know, what does God say about you? It reminded me of one of our, our reader responses or listener responses, Ty, who said he, when he's dealing with shame, he asks himself, what would a kind dad say? Hmm. And then to invite God into his shame rather than trying to get rid of it. His shame moments have really been beautiful times where God solidifies his own sonship and convinces them that he won't leave when, when things get messy. And so I really appreciated that because I think that, yeah, you're right. Going back to God is the only, the only way that we can, um, you know, really combat this sense of, of our own worthlessness or, or whatever that shame speaks over us. And, and so for me personally, um, I guess the most powerful way that I've been able to, to go to God, at least recently has been through, through music, like turning on worship music and, just standing in front of the kitchen sink doing dishes and kind of just weeping, Aww. you know, as, as I'm listening to truth being sung over me, I guess. I 
love that, Matt. Thanks for sharing. I appreciate what Avril, uh, what she had to say about this. I am very thankful for my fiance and family who remind me of there is now no condemnation for those mm-hmm. who are in Christ Jesus. That no is capitalized. And uh, no room for shame when there is the truth of no condemnation being spoken. Yeah, I just really appreciated those words, and I can really relate. I think um, Romans 8 is my favorite chapter in the Bible. I don't know if you're allowed to pick a favorite, uh, but (laughs) that's what I always return to. I remember like uh, 17 years ago, coming out of my, you know, pornography addiction and I had a great mentor uh, and I was wrestling with, well, God hates my sin and I couldn't separate that from, from my person, mm-hmm. you know? And mm-hmm. so he was like, yes, he got, he hates your sin because of how much he loves you. Yeah. And that sin is the thing that's kind of blocking, interrupting that relationship. He mm-hmm. loves you. And so it was the first time that I saw the difference there. Mm. And so for me, it's just reminding myself that Jesus loves me, yeah. you know, and Romans eight is a good help with that. There's mm. all kinds of other passages that I return to and I just have to remind myself of that. Man, Satan is such a jerk. He just <laughs> so like tries to quarantine us and isolate us and then just repeat these shame lies so loud. I was speaking somewhere today and it was with to a room full of young people And they, I was so surprised at how many questions came up anonymously about God's hatred of them or God's anger toward them. Mm -hmm. Is Jesus mad at me? Is God hate me? And I was like, ah, like I was, I was really shocked. Like I, I, I kind of thought that maybe young people, I sound like I'm a (laughs) hundred, but young people would like really see Jesus as their homeboy and he's real chill. And I was like, wow, I think we need to talk more about that. Exactly what you're saying, because it's really shame that's stepping up to the plate. Mm Um, I liked what Kanita said, and she mentioned a book called Shame Lifter, and she said that the author highlights three areas, shame receivers, givers, and lifters. And she said, I acknowledged I was a receiver and then co- confessed I was a giver and then of, of shame and then asked the Holy Spirit to make me a lifter of shame. And she said, today, several years later, when it comes knocking, I claim what God did for me back then and keep my eyes on him until the knocking stops. Hmm. And so I think, you know, I, I know I can do it even since our conversations with Kurt, um, like a couple weeks ago, just talking through, man, I can shame people in small ways. Like I'm just getting more and more awakened to my own doing of that. And, but I do find it lifts in me as I try and lift up other people, which sounds cliche, but it is like biblical like in giving we receive. And so I for sure see that. Well, thanks guys. Thanks for exploring that with us. Um, So now we're going to move to the time of the show where we take a vacation from our problems on purpose because we can get too serious. So it's time for the game we're playing and welcome Chad Bird (laughs) to our game. This (laughs) is the Jesus Link trivia game. Now, Matt's dad came to visit this past weekend and he brought some of Matt's 90s and early thousands Childhood paraphernalia. And one of them was this book. And it was written in, I don't know, aught three or something like that. Um, It had to be earlier than that. I I honestly don't even remember the book at all. But it was something you must have read in youth group and you like Bible bold each other or something. (laughs) So the vehicle, didn't talk about that, that we are taking is Matt's high school car, which was 
1990 white Honda Accord four-door. <laughs> and when I met Matt in 2007, he was still driving that oh, baby. Oh, it was. And there was a <laughs> nest of papers in the back. I mean, no question. <laughs> so, sorry, there's four of us, you know, talking in this conversation. So and two of you are in the back seat because mm. I'm knees. driving. Yeah. <laughs> Okay, so all you Bible nerds, I mean, Matt, you got a couple degrees. Chad Bird, you got some, right? You got several degrees. And Steve? Yeah, I got a couple. I, you got some. I went to Christian school since fourth grade. So yeah, and I, you're I our resident that. chaplain. So oh, all right. you nerds can answer <laughs> these questions on Jesus Link. Okay. Okay, so this is how it's going to work. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to ask a question, and you guys either beat, you go, Ding, ding, or something in, and you tell me the answer. I hope these aren't too hard, even though they're written for high schoolers. I'm not going to lie. I was a little iffy on them. Okay. Question one. When does scripture say that Jesus was chosen to come to earth and offer a sacrifice for our sins? So when does scripture say that Jesus was chosen to come to earth and offer a sacrifice for our sins? It can be like general-ish. You don't have to say the exact quote. But just when does it say it was chosen? <laughs> no one's jumping in. I, know. I'm like, I have no idea. I mean, there's a lot of references, but I'm like, I don't know where it says chosen. <clears throat> Not exactly the reference. I'm just saying, like, the general time period. When did God choose Jesus to come to earth? Oh, was it like before creation of the world or something? Ding, ding, ding. Is that ding. what we're going for? Oh, yes. Okay, I'm like thinking oh. this is a badly written question. I'm not, okay, also my four-year-old helped me pick the questions. I was like, just point to one. So <laughs> these were randomly chosen. Right. So it's in First Peter 1, 20 before the creation of the world. So uh. it was kind of a badly worded question, but per use, Matt's in the lead. Mm. All right. Number two, who was David's great-grandmother? Ding, ding. <laughs> yeah, go ahead, Chad. <laughs> that would be Ruth. Yay, yeah. good job. Yep. Okay. Yep. Everyone's like Googling. Real- I can see, I can see <laughs> these guys. No, I trust you, Chad, but <laughs> I can look at these guys' Google fingers. Okay, question three. What did certain Jews call Jesus after he proclaimed, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death? So what did they call ding, him? Ding, ding, a heretic? Nope. <laughs> <laughs> They called him lots of things. You could probably yeah. just think of something they called him and then just, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. Never see death. Five. Can I guess four. again? Yeah, go oh, ahead. Okay. I didn't really have a guess. All I wanted to say was friend of sinners, but that's going back to our previous <laughs> conversation. <laughs> now we're just, Matt's going to write an essay. Okay. Yeah. It was. They call him a liar? That was a good guess. It was demon possessed. Oh, John eight no, fifty two. Demon, yeah. go with the demons, yes. guys. If in doubt. Yes. Okay, we get still Chad one, Matt one. Come on, Steve. Okay, pull All right. in the Christian I know, I know. training. <laughs> Number four, and there's just two more. In what parable does Jesus quote, "My son, you are always with me, and everything I have is Ding. yours." Hey, Steve, look at the you. prodigal son. Yeah. 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 All right. Good this one. is the tiebreaker. Everybody, everybody got one. <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. Okay. Yeah, boy. <laughs> Whom did Jesus call the sons of God in his Sermon on the Mount? Ding, ding. <gasps> yeah, Chad. 
Peacemakers. Hey, oh, ah, the winner yes. is the guest, as it should yes. be. Yes. That All is right. as it good should job. be. As it should be. All right, good job. Thanks for playing our game on Jesus Link. I hope that there's <laughs> yeah, some. Yeah, is there going to be like, who wants to be a millionaire? Like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, music ow. between each question. We've got to somehow incorporate your Honda. I just need some the sort of squeal that came up when it started every time. <laughs> oh, okay. oh, yeah. It was so loud. I was like, man, my boyfriend's so cool. Okay, <laughs> let's let's do the focus now. Let's get to the heart of the matter. Now, Chad, after playing our games, let's get to that gospel, which is your focus of your life and all of our lives. And we ask every guest these two questions. How was the gospel? Which... I switched the wording around based on our conversations with Kurt. He's like, it's kind of shamey to start with sin as opposed to loved. So if the gospel is I'm more loved than I can imagine and more sinful than I believe, reversing some of the Keller quote, how is it first good news for you? And then how is it still? Oh, that's a, uh, it's kind of a, a complicated question. When I think about, when I think back on my life, hmm. uh, I was raised in the church. Uh, we were there every every Sunday, twice, sometimes twice, twice on Sundays and Wednesday nights. So I, I've always been, from my earliest memories, part of the church. But uh, like a lot of people, uh, the the gospel didn't really hit home with me until I hit rock bottom. Yeah. Uh, that that light shines brightest when you're in your in your darkest place. So uh, a, a very very brief uh, version of my story was raised in the church, went to Christian college, went to seminary, became a pastor, and then actually became a Hebrew professor, professor of the Old Testament for a while, and then uh, made some decisions in which I basically blew up my life and mm. and lost everything uh, that I had had worked to obtain, including marriage, career, reputation, and, mm. and everything. That, that was when I entered that uh, years-long dark phase uh, that, that God finally rescued me from. But it was coming out of that dark phase and and the, the self-hatred, the, the shame, mm. the, the guilt, the, the hopelessness. It was coming out of that, God bringing me out of that, when the gospel really began to, to sink uh, deeply into me. It's, it, was, it was in those moments when I, I would look at myself and see nothing to love and yet know that God loved me fully hmm. and seeing myself absolutely nothing by which I could somehow earn any divine favor. But knowing that that there is no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus and that we are we are loved with uh, all of God's heart in Christ, knowing that believing that uh, is really when the gospel began to to make its its impact on me. Uh, it's it's kind of like you know you you don't realize that Christ is all you need until Christ is all you have, yes. and so in, in in stripping away all of this kind of uh, the material by which I, I I gave myself an identity and a purpose, and taking away all all of that which I had basically made into into my idols, yeah. and taking away all of that and replacing it with my identity in Christ in His death and resurrection, and knowing that I stand in the, in the favor and grace of God and Christ, that, that is really when uh, the gospel hit home, hit home with me. I, I always knew it. I always believed it, but it's like a lot of things in life. You, you have to take a few uh, knocks and bruises and, and all the other pains that life throws at you before you really begin to, to appreciate what grace is and, and how, 
it can bring healing to you. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of a long answer to a yeah. short question. It's making sense then, though, why your book, as I had like a stack of them to go through, stood out to me. And then just like looking through some of your blogs and even some of your Twitter feed, just I was like, this guy gets it. And not that I'm the judge at all, but I could hear some of that grittiness in what you write. Like you've hit rock bottom and in there you've known grace. So just thanks for sharing your that piece of your story, because it, it really comes through in how you write and how you speak. Well, you know, I was thinking of that when you were talking about the kids you spoke with earlier today. Uh, you know, we live in a, a law saturated world, yeah. whether it's, you know, whether it's uh, capital L laws, the Ten Commandments or little L laws, all of these requirements that we think we have to live up to in order to gain people's acceptance and favor. And it, so it's really no wonder that the kids wonder if God hates them, yeah. uh, because a lot of what we experience in life uh, seems to indicate, you know, that somebody above us is like we're on his hit list at mm. least you know that can be the impression that we get and so the more that we can the more that we can focus on god's love for us in christ and everything that that entails yeah. uh, then uh, that's that's really what the the kids and the adults and all of us all yeah. of us need to hear over and over mm-hmm. and we are on someone's hit list but the great deceiver has deceived us to see that the hitman is not is is god is what he has deceived us to see when really it's himself. So, Chad, I could guess this from just even the bit that you you just said of your story, but why did you choose to write Upside Down Spirituality? Why did you choose to focus on failure as being a good thing? Yeah, uh, I, it's it's been through my own failures that uh, I've, I've really learned what true success is. Uh, there's, there's something about losing that makes you realize exactly what it means to, uh, to be on the, the receiving side of everything that God has given to us in, in his son. So I, I love the idea of, of, of blessed failures of God working through failure. Hmm. And I've, I've experienced the opposite of that. I've experienced the danger of success and everything that that, uh, that that comes along with success, because in my own case, it, it led to pride, and and pride is like a magnet attracting all sorts of other temptations and mm-hmm. vices, and so it was that it was that pride that led to my own uh, the the uh, the implosion of my own life. Mm. So, knowing that God works through failures uh, was was an attraction to me, just as far as putting this book together. And so, what I wanted to do was to approach it from this upside down, backwards sort of way that that God works. Uh, theologians talk about the theology of the cross. That is, that God works in ways that are seemingly backward to us. He shows His glory in a cross. He He gives us life in the death of His Son. Uh, he reveals his glory in the midst of the the goriness of the of the cross. So he's always working in ways that seem to us wrong and foolish and backwards. It's the whole First Corinthians chapter one sort of approach that God takes, where he mm-hmm. makes he makes foolish the wisdom of the world, and he shows his wisdom in that which we deem to be foolishness. So mm. I wanted to kind of take various areas of our lives, uh, our individual lives, lives as as parents and as and as spouses. And then also mm-hmm. our lives as, as a church and approach each of those three areas with these blessed failures and to show how how often what we what we accept, the wisdom of the world that we accept is actually 
not the wisdom of God, and his wisdom is something that that has to be kind of driven into us because it does seem so counterintuitive to whatever we accept as as true. Yeah. So, you know, when, when God comes knocking on our door with, with his truth, a lot of times we want to turn away because we think, no, there's no way that that could be the case. Mm. Uh, but that is the way that God works. He's, he's, a, he's a beatitude kind of God where he pronounces something blessed, which often the world would pronounce as cursed. Absolutely. Well, let's talk about the first blessed uh, failure, which is the failure to believe in ourselves. And um, I remember in junior high, a pastor saying, like, you might not believe in God, but the good news is he believes in you. And I just remember, like, scratching my head or, like, you know, every a school assembly is you can do anything you put your mind to or your heart, you know, or those inspirational cat posters of <laughs> just believe or whatever. So why is it? Why is the failure to believe in ourselves, or as you quote that title, that chapter, the good news that God doesn't believe in you? Why is that blessed? Yeah, I was I was raised in the 1970s, which is really when the the self esteem movement uh, came into into full force, and so I was raised on a steady diet of of self esteem. Yeah. And of course, that's of course that's still that's still around today. You know, you you walk into any bookstore, and there's plenty of shelves full of self help books. Yeah, uh, I, I've noticed there's no other help books. You know, it's all <laughs> oh it's all, snap, sick <laughs> yeah, burn bookstores. All about uh, <laughs> all about helping helping ourselves, and hmm. and I mean I understand the the perspective from which the self esteem movement comes, uh, although I think it's completely wrong headed. But it's not as if we need to think more uh, lowly of ourselves uh, or, or, or highly of ourselves. I think the, the key here is we need to think of ourselves less mm-hmm. yes. uh, rather than focusing upon building our self-esteem and building self-confidence and thinking better of ourselves and thinking that God is believing in us uh, to, to take the focus off of ourselves, to quit our navel gazing mm-hmm. and to, to learn to live in, in two different directions to learn to live by faith in God and by love in our neighbor. Mm-hmm. So the, the, that's, that's the summary of really what the Christian life is all about. We live by faith in God and we live by love in our neighbor. And so our focus is never inward, it's, it's outward. Mm-hmm. But self-esteem does the exact opposite. Uh, and that's kind of what is behind this, this idea that God believes in you or you can believe in yourself. It's this, it's kind of the, 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 the ancient approach of our sinful nature where, where the world revolves around us and we become our own little gods in our own little bit of universe uh, in, a, in a kind of a, a spiritual narcissism. Mm. So my, my focus in this chapter is, to, is, to, is not for people to believe in themselves and not to think that God believes in them, but rather to put their, put their faith in the God who loves us. He doesn't believe in us. I mean, we're we're told in Scripture that we aren't to trust in in people, so we certainly shouldn't tr- surely shouldn't trust in ourselves. Hmm. Uh, so uh, we put our trust in God, and then we learn to live sacrificially as the the baptized priest of God in love for those who are around us. And that, when we, you know, if you think about it, some of the happiest times that we experience. Are, are when we stop being so self-conscious. We stop yes. thinking about ourselves and we're lost in the moment. So we're, we're not focusing on what we want. We're focused on something which is outside of us, something mm-hmm. maybe that we enjoy or someone that we love. And that is, that's 
I think the closest we come to true humanity, to really living the life that God wants for us, when we forget about ourselves and focus instead externally on either the neighbor or God himself. Mm-hmm. I think a lot of that derives from like this starvation Christianity that we live out. And it's like, there's not enough love to go around. And so we suck the life out of everyone around us because we are so needy. And we think that that will actually like help satiate this, I guess this hole in our heart always comes back to that, but it is so counterintuitive and so upside down to think, in giving, we receive. And in going to Christ, there is always enough. We're not starved when we go to Him. It's the only place where we can actually be full. So right on. What about this failure to make a name for ourselves? Why is that blessed? Yeah, there's a a, a verse in, in, Paul's, uh, in Paul's letter where he talks about ambition. And uh, he says to make it Make it our ambition to lead a, a quiet life. Yeah. I love that verse because it, it's, it's, so, it's so contradictory to everything that, that is pressed upon us these days. You know what? For, for, most, for most, not only the church's history, but for world history, if you, look at, uh, if you look at ancient literature, Greek and Roman literature, if you look at Shakespeare, and certainly if you look at the, the teaching and preaching of the scriptures throughout the centuries, ambition is a dirty word. Mm. Uh, so, but it, but it's undergone a metamorphosis because today it's like people are encouraged to be ambitious. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're supposed to pursue their, their ambition. They're supposed to make a name for themselves. Uh, and, and, and I'm not saying that people shouldn't have uh a good work, good work ethic, and and strive to accomplish goals. There's that's that's fine. Ambition is self-serving, though, mm-hmm. in the way at least has been understood uh, historically. If you're ambitious, then you're you're looking out for number one. You're seeking whatever you're doing. You're seeking to take care of yourself first and foremost. Mm-hmm. So when Paul says to make it your ambition to lead a quiet and peaceful life, he's basically saying make it your ambition not to be ambitious. Yeah. Make it your ambition not to make a name for yourselves, but instead make it your ambition to hearken back to what I said earlier to to look toward your neighbor. Yeah, that's what that's what true that's what true life is is all about. It's not about making a name for ourselves or getting ahead of everybody else or achieving fame, whatever kind of mission that we're on in order to get more for ourselves. Is, is always going to be wrong-headed because mm-hmm. the focus is right back upon right back upon us, upon what we want and what we desire instead of what is best for those who are who are around us. So I mean it's it's I, and I think I know what's behind the the drive for ambition because we we all want love, we all want acceptance yeah. and we all want worth. And so we think that if we can, if we can achieve enough, if we can make enough money, if our, if we can become famous, if our name can get out there, then people will love us and will and will accept us. And mm. uh, it, it just it's simply mm. a lie because we we even see this all the time in in the media. You know, someone might be famous and and rich and everybody loves them. Right. Uh, take Bill Cosby for instance. Yeah. And well, all of that can just vanish mm. in, in a moment. Mm-hmm. Uh, because it's all building up on a foundation of sand and, and it's all about what we can get for ourselves instead of living 
in love and service and sacrifice for for those who are around us. So if we're living out of our purpose and like, uh, I, not the dreams we have for ourselves, but the goals that God is giving us to achieve, then if that all disappears, it's like, well, it's God's anyway. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Like he gives and he takes away. But if it's our identity, then when that, whatever we're trying to achieve and pursue for our own gain, there's pride again. When that's gone, it's like we're demolished. So it's, it's such a difference in focus of work, isn't it? Yeah, because uh, any, if, if we're seeking to build our identity and if we're seeking to understand who, the, thus who we are based upon what we've accomplished, then it's always uh, just beleaguered by fragility because we, the, the lives that we live and our bodies and our relationships and, and everything else, all of that is, is extremely fragile. It can vanish in a moment. Uh, we can wake up one morning, not feel quite right. And the next week go to the doctor and find out we have pancreatic cancer. We right. can, we can lose our spouse. We can lose our children. We can lose our job. We can lose our, our savings account. I mean, every, everything in this life is very easily and very quickly lost. Uh, so if we stake our identity on that, then we're staking our identity upon that, which is just ephemeral. It's, it's easily lost yeah. and, and some aspect of it will be lost. But if we if we know who we are in Christ, in that one who's the same yesterday and today and forever, the one who is who is one with us and one with his Father, then that cannot cannot be lost. Yeah. And so we we understand that it's that who we are is not is not limited to our own person, but who we are is is defined by and delimit and defined by our connection with with Jesus Christ. Absolutely. The next one, the failure to follow our hearts, which I love the title of that chapter, which is go home heart, you're drunk. Uh, why is it blessed to not follow our sometimes drunk hearts? You know, I think I got the idea from this chapter when I was walking my dog one day. Uh, he's a he's a weenie dog, a little dachshund named Justice. And Aww. I had him in the I had him in the park on a it was the leash was probably 10, 15 feet long, something like that. And we couldn't go more than 10 or 20 yards without justice following his heart and end up getting wrapped around trees yeah. or chasing a chasing a trying to chase a deer or rolling in something that did not smell good that was in the grass. Yes. I mean he was he was following his heart. He was doing what he desired. <laughs> and it was doing nothing but causing problems and getting him in trouble and making him have a bath when he when he got home. And I, I was I was thinking about our own hearts and the directions that they go. Uh, I mean, we, we are very much uh, like justice in that respect. Uh, we Our hearts are, are always going to go astray if we're simply following the direction that they want to go. Mm-hmm. Uh, our hearts are always shaped by the experiences that we have, by the people who are around us, the, the music we listen to, the movies we watch, our friends, uh, our work environment. I mean, this, everything around us every day is in one way or another seeking to calibrate our hearts in a certain direction. And, of course, not everything that we hear and experience is going to be what, what God wants for us. Mm. And so if we, if we simply follow our hearts, we're, all, we're always in one way or another going to be going astray. The scriptures yeah. don't have a whole lot of good things to say about the human heart. Mm. In fact, it has some uh, very, very dark things to say about the human heart. And 
so if, if we're simply doing what we want or what feels good or what seems right or where our heart is leading us, then inevitably it's going to lead us off the edge of a cliff eventually mm-hmm. or into quicksand yep. or into some kind of some kind of danger. So instead of doing that, uh, we we follow the direction that God lays out very clearly, very explicitly in his, in his word. And and we seek to have our hearts conformed to that word. It's not as if we ignore our hearts, but we seek to have our hearts conformed by that word in order that they, that they might be in sync with it. But the, the ultimate touchstone is always what God himself says, or to put it a different way, instead of following our own heart, we follow the heart of God, which he's open to us, revealed to us in, in his scriptures. That's where he lays open mm. his own heart for us to see what beats there. And what beats there is always what's best for us, what's going to truly make us joyful and full of peace in the long run. It doesn't mean it's always going to be fantastic and fun at the moment, but it's ultimately going to lead us to where true joy is to be found. Mm. Absolutely. And I, I just love that, just picturing God's heart beating out of the word and just, God, make my heart like yours. This failure to be a perfect parent, I mean, that hits me right between the eyes almost every day. I'm just reflecting on some things I was rude about to my girls yesterday night and their failure to go to bed. Uh, but how can we be good parents or, you know, I was even thinking like dependent on God parents without being having to be like perfect. How do we wrestle through that? Because I really do want to cultivate them, Matt. Like we do want to cultivate our kids well, but like how do we remove the pressure to be perfect? I think the, the first step uh, and, and perhaps the most important step is to is to embrace the fact that we are going to mess up as parents. Yeah. Uh, just get that out of the way. I don't right want away. to. <laughs> yeah. yeah we're we're going to mess up in, in ways that are small and in ways that are big. Uh, that's that's just simply what parents do because mm-hmm. parents happen. Every single parent happens to be a sinner. And that's yeah. just what sinners do. So yep. it, just accepting that, confessing that and being willing to uh, to admit it when it happens. That's that is actually a big step because it's 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 an admission that we are imperfect that we are flawed parents and that uh, there's going to be a whole lot of things that we say that we'll regret, things that we'll do that we'll mm-hmm. regret, and things that we should have done that we we didn't do that we will regret mm-hmm. as well. So yeah. simply acknowledging that I think is, is, a, is, a, is a first step because what happens, the reason I think we're seeking to be perfect parents, we're striving after this perfectionism, is really because we want to be the ones who are in control Mm-hmm. Whether that's you know like a like a helicopter parent or uh, uh, a tiger mom mm-hmm. or you know a hero dad, whatever it might be, and so we we're, we're pushing ourselves to be perfect because we want to be in control and we want to be in control because basically we want to be our own little divinities in our own little world and control every single thing that that happens and that is uh, that's a recipe. For, for disaster be, because, well, it's false to begin with, but it also, it, it doesn't really leave any room for, for the most necessary aspect of parenting, and that is to rely on the, the grace and mercy of our, of our Father mm-hmm. to cover our failures yeah. and, yeah. To, and to help us to, to teach our own children 
that it's the grace and mercy of our Father that that matters that matters most. Yeah, if I can jump in because there's, well, you 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 gave the the little illustration of of you walking walking your dog justice, and and this is something that when working with parents, I've often used a a dog walker analogy, um, you know where. God is the dog walker and, and both the parent and their child are dogs who are on separate leashes. And, and inevitably when the, the child is going off and following their heart, you know, and, and sniffing the fire hydrant or, or going, getting wrapped around trees or whatever the child is doing, the parent's initial response is, I must correct this. I must fix this. And, and there's no, there's no I, I guess, safety in the fact that, okay, your child is, is over there doing his thing, but guess what? He's still on a leash. God is still in control. God is still mm-hmm. able to go and get your child unwrapped. And in you running over there to try and fix control, to control fix this, you're actually making yourself go farther away from God. And thus, you're not even modeling for your child the thing that you want your child to be doing, which is trusting God's sovereignty and, and trusting and following his will for your life uh, so yeah your illustration of you know your little wiener dog if it doesn't matter if he's pulling like as hard as he can he's a wiener dog and you're gonna just go and pick him up with one hand and very <laughs> easily bring him where you want him to go mm-hmm. which is to the bathtub or wherever you give him <laughs> a bath you know and so and I, and I know in my own heart like I want my kids to not struggle I want them to be perfect which which really is just a reflection of my own heart and and not even a reflection of of where god will lead them in their own broken lives so good guys i am getting hit between the eyes further with your talk of control and divinity the desire to be the divine so Okay, good. Good job, Lori, getting convicted. Again, why do we bring these amazing guests on? And Matt, you're amazing too. Okay, the failure to find our soulmate. What, Chad? That's the purpose of life. Don't talk to me about that. Like, why isn't it, you know, why will love not sustain our marriage, which is the title of that chapter? And why is it good to fail in finding our soulmate? Yeah, this is actually one of my favorite chapters to write. I think I think because of of all of the the misconceptions out there, uh, especially in regard to relationships, this one is is right at the top. I hear this so many times, uh, either online with social media or in conversations or, or with friends, especially those who might be divorced and they're they're trying to date and they're looking for looking for someone and mm. they're looking for that perfect person who's just going to complete them. That, that one person out there who is just that has that puzzle piece that's going to fill in that gap that they have in their heart. The only person out there who's able who's able to do that. And and I want to say to them, you know, that's that's just all that's all false. Mm. <laughs> There's absolutely no basis of truth in that because. Yeah. There, there is. First of all, there's no perfect person out there who's going to to complete us. If if we're looking for a person like that, we're basically looking for a person who's a god or a yeah. goddess because that's the only person who can can complete us. I mean, it's it's just like the name of your podcast, whole whole in my heart, right? Well, yeah. the only the only person who's going to fill that is the person who created the heart to begin with. He's yeah. the only one yeah. that is going to give us that completion and perfection that we need, and so. To ask that of another person is to is to, is to ask the impossible, 
And then if we if we think they're going to give that to us, then they're going to be a, a bitter disappointment to us because mm-hmm. they can't be God to us. Mm. So there there is no there is no soulmate out there. It's 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 simply a myth that uh, has been perpetuated by by someone. Maybe it's Hallmark, but uh, so, someone Starring out there has movies. perpetuated this myth yeah. that uh, that there's a soulmate. And kind of the other part of this chapter is that is this idea that. What, really what we need is if we have love, that's going to be enough for our marriage. Oy. Uh, yeah, the, I, I took I took that particular part from a, a quote by uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Oh, there you go. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer has a, has a sermon where he says he's he's preaching to it's a wedding sermon. He's preaching to a young couple and he says uh, basically that uh, that it won't be love that sustains your marriage, but it's marriage that sustains your love, because anyone who's been married for more than like 10 minutes yeah. knows that there are going to be times when you have problems, you have yeah. conflicts, and some of those are, are, are major conflicts. And it's and if you were dating or simply living together, it would be very easy to walk away from the relationship and not be basically forced by the situation in which you have placed yourself, that is marriage, to stay and work things out. Right. And so one of the one of the gifts of marriage is it it places us as it were into a house, into a house that not that we made but that God made, the house of marriage. And it's like God locks the front door, locks the back door and he says, "All right, you two work it out." Because this is the this is the place that I put you. And so it won't be our love that sustains a marriage, but very often it's marriage that sustains our love because it keeps us together, forces two sinners to live together and make sacrifices, to think about someone other than themselves, uh, it, it's it, it's just a it's a great place for us to be be pulled out of our of our innate selfishness and yeah. to learn to to give, to sacrifice, to do things for for someone else, and then hopefully they for us, so that we can really learn what love and sacrifice truly mean. So good. I know when Matt and I were going through only one tough time, we've only been through one issue ever. Just kidding. <laughs> um, but I know in, in one particular tough time, I remember really adjusting my question about our marriage from are we going to make it to how are we going to make it? And what was in my head and really over us was this covenant that we made. And so that lovely Bonhoeffer quote of just it's really marriage that sustains your love is just critical. We got two more failures to look at, and then we're going to call it a day, and we're going to feel excited about our failures. Um, but the failure to separate ourselves, and from what I gathered in your chapter, like this is something that we wrestle with as parents, and I think many parents wrestle with, which is really that control thing. And we as people wrestle with, like, how much do we shelter our kids, and how much do we allow? We won't let them watch Harry Potter, but we will let them watch Lord of the Rings. Like, how? how why is that a good failure? Yeah, I, uh, I, I went back to, uh, to the Old Testament uh, for, for kind of understanding of, of this because there was a, there was a time when, when the nation of Israel was exiled to Babylon and they lived in Babylon, uh, well, some of them for 70 years and, and some of them for just multiple generations. And so here they were, they were in a, uh, they were outside the Holy Land, they were in a, a pagan environment. Uh, they were still together as the people of God, but they were interacting daily with those who were not of their faith, not of their understanding of the world, who were 
in, in many cases, had complete opposite viewpoints of what was important, who God was, what worship was, all of these questions. And so it's a, it's a very, for us anyway, a very contemporary setting because that's that's how we exist in this world. We are we're strangers and aliens. We're exiles, just like Israel was when when Israel was was in Babylon. Hmm. But what's fascinating is that God God through Jeremiah tells the people to basically to settle down, hmm. uh, to build houses, to plant gardens, and to and to pray for the peace of the cities in hmm. which they live. Hmm. So basically, he's telling them. Uh, well, quite literally, to sink roots, uh, to plan on staying there, to be, to be active there, uh, to work there, to to be as much in Babylon as they can. Now, how, hmm. the question is, how do you do that safely? Right. How do you how do you do that without Babylon, uh, Babylonianizing your heart, without right. it completely taking over your heart and influencing how you think and how you speak and what's what's important? And I think the I think the the answer to that, and this is a very general answer, but I think it is the answer that we need, is that is that the more that we the more time that we spend being formed by the Jerusalem of the church, the safer we will be in the Babylon of the world. Hmm. That is to say, let, letting our hearts be be shaped by worship, letting our hearts be shaped by the teaching of the scriptures, letting our hearts be be shaped by everything that's happening within the life of the church, the, the, the more that we are shaped by that, then the less impact that the world will have on us. Because every day, whether wherever we are, whatever job we have, whoever we're hanging around, there's going to be like what, uh, what James Smith calls these micro liturgies uh, of the yes. world, these secular liturgies of the world around us that are always pulling our hearts in certain directions and trying to, to reshape our values and and what we what we think is important in life, but the more that the the liturgy, the worship, the the life of the church is shaping our hearts, yeah. then the safer we'll be from what's happening in the in the Babylons in which we live. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. The last one that we're going to talk about, and again, there's two more, and um, <clears throat> I say this often. I think we just pick guests who are graceful and. <laughs> lack of shame and just lean in with grace and truth. But what you're hearing in Chad Bird's actual voice now, you'll hear in his book voice. Um, so, and it just, I just like the way that you write. It's just very, it's easy read and just really helpful. Um, so I just encourage you to read about the last two and all of these more in depth in his book. But this last failure is the failure to embrace bigger as better. And you know, I do a decent amount of traveling. Matt and I do some together. And I'm, I, you know, it's big churches with thousands and thousands of members to like hundreds. And and you you kind of like get the sense like the big guys are training the little guys. But is it is it kind of that need to be flipped upside down there? Like, is it should we learn something from the quote unquote little guys churches that maybe the big big churches need to learn? Yeah, I think the, uh, certainly the learning can go both ways, from big to little, and from little and from little to big. Um, my main concern is in, in talking about mega churches or just big churches is is really to ask the question: What lurks beneath this desire to be bigger? Hmm. Uh, I mean, are we looking for control? Are we looking for influence? Are we looking for some kind of authenticity? Like, well, we have a big church, so we, we're authentically the church, look at our success, right? Look huh. at our, look at our numbers. Mm-hmm. It's, it's all, 
it all becomes a, a big numbers game. Status. And so it, it, it's kind of like, you know, it's, it's, it's really, it's, it's very typically American. Of mm. course, everything in America has to be bigger and better and bolder. And hey, they're Texas. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. I'm, I'm, I'm uh, pointing a finger right back at myself. Right? <laughs> yeah, so I, I think that uh, the bigger churches can learn a lot from smaller churches, and certainly smaller churches can learn from big churches. But I, what bothers me the most, and, and what I what I urge in this chapter is basically to to quit thinking about numbers. Period. Mm. I've got a good friend who. Uh, he's a pastor of a relatively small to mid-sized church. And when I was first getting to know him, I, I asked him how many people were usually in worship on Sunday. Yeah. And I love his answer. He said, 100%. Oh, yeah. That, and that's exactly right. There's, are there five there? Are there 500? Are there 50,000? Well, mm. either, either way, it's 100%. Hmm. Uh, because the people who are there are the church. And the, the people who are there are joined with a church that is in heaven. Uh, the church can't be broken down to little bitty segments. The church is the church is the church. It's, yeah. it's all part of the body of Christ. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's not like the finger is doing its thing on its own or the toe is doing its thing on its own. We're all part of one, one mm-hmm. body. Uh, so I, I, I do think that, that, the, that the bigger the church grows, then the more easily it becomes susceptible to this this American idea of, of bigger, bigger is better. Mm-hmm. And it loses, it loses some of the, the personal and the, uh, uh, the pastor to people connection that you have and that you have mm-hmm. in smaller churches. Mm-hmm. So, uh, it's really a question of what becomes the focus of the church. Yeah. Is it on mm-hmm. numbers or is it, is the preaching of Christ and him crucified? Yeah. And if that preaching is going on, then, the church is going to grow or the church is going to lose members. I mean, it, it's, it might go one way, it might go the yeah. other, but that's where we'll turn things over to God's spirit and let him work through the word to do, to do what he does and yeah. to take it out of our own hands and to quit trying to control the numbers and simply thank God for the people that are there and uh, continue doing what God has given us to do, which is to preach and not to count. And I, I will say I have worked with, quite a few mega churches. And I, sometimes I like, you like automatically want to hate them. Cause you're like, you, you're big and you must be self-centered and mean. And I'm sure some of them are and do lose focus. And I, but I will say it is possible because I talk with these pastors, like I hear their hearts and I'm like, man, you're, it comes back to that ambition thing. And it comes back to that whole like purpose. And I guess just like, what does God want for you to see what's the purpose that he's put in, in your hands and what, how many talents, you know, like how many has he put in your hand and how have you cultivated that? Um, so it really is, it goes back to that. Is this about me? Is this about us? Is this about building the machine so that we're okay? And if it's gone, then we go, our whole identity is gone. Or is this God, this is your fruit and we just want to steward this well. It's got to go back to that heart, doesn't it? <laughs> yes, it does. Yeah, that's uh, that's that's key. If we If we go back to to the heart that's shaped by the heart of God in Christ, then uh, that's that's where we should be. So, Chad Bird, you made me think a lot in this podcast and um, and even in thinking about this ministry and like, man, why is it so grow, grow, grow? And is that like what we have to do? Or And I don't feel that pressure like from our board or even from me, but it's really, God, what do you, how do you want 
to utilize these resources that you have? And how do you want to utilize me? Um, But just in thinking about parenting and marriage and all of these different failures and even your story uh, really just touched my own heart. So thanks so much for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on the show. It's really been a pleasure. Yeah, for us too. Uh, For all of you listeners, I will post all the Chad Bird things on our uh, Hole in My Heart uh, website, himhministries.com, and you'll find that under the blog and podcast page. uh, So you can find his blog and his uh, podcast as well, as well as links to this book that comes out April 2, April 2. Um, And for you as well, we would love to hear from you. Let's do the question of the week taken from Chad Bird. I just can't stop saying your whole name. It just flows so nicely. Uh, But the question of the week is, what is your favorite name of God and why? Like, what's the name of God that like really connects with you? I know all of them are your favorite, but which one really connects with you in your heart? And maybe it is that friend of sinners one, but we'd love to hear the what and the why. And for those of you um, who don't know what Hole in My Heart Ministries does, one of the things that we do 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 is we equip churches with a gospel centered approach to sexuality. And one of the things is this journey well workshop training that we do. And we're so grateful to steward what God has put into our hands. And Matt and I tag team just really trying to walk alongside the church and how to um, love LGBT people well in particular without changing our theology. And so we get a lot of joy in walking that out. Um, and so if that's an interest of, to you, we're actually booking into July and I'm having a baby in June, so <laughs> we're going to work that out. Uh, but if you are interested in having us come and train your church or school or team, um, we are working, we're working with some K to 12 schools actually today. Uh, and so we would love to just come and help, help you to journey well. Uh, we also would love if you want to share this podcast with a friend, if you are blessed by it, and we'd love to hear your reviews and, and any of that. So thanks so much for listening. We will see you all next week. So Lori, when what? you're posting all of the Chad Bird things, uh-huh. if there's multiple birds, is it a flock? So if there's multiple Chad birds, is it a flock of <laughs> Chad bird things? Yes. Yes. I will post a flock of things. For, for or is it a, a congregation? Or, or a plover? Or a plo- no, that's the congregation of plover. Oh, of plover. Or a murder right. of crows. A, you What's know, the owl one? It's parliament. A, a parliament. parliament of owls. Didn't we yes. do this before? I'm having flashbacks to early podcast I think we days. Did. I think we did. I think we did. Yeah. A blessing of unicorns. Yeah. I mean, but if it's just a, a, a <laughs> generic, generic bird. bird, it would be a flock. It would be a flock. <laughs> so all of like birds Chad and a feather birds, flock together. His entire library it would just be a flock of you books. could have done the entire goofball island game of bird puns and saying to- like two birds it. with one stone oh my word all mm. right we're here all night nerds <laughs> see you later <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>